I wanted to talk to you today about the fact that uh, Passover is fast approaching. And that means that we need to do some preparation to get ready for that. I believe it's going to be uh, about seven weeks, 49, 50 days, something like that until Passover. And, uh, you know, God didn't give his church a lot of ritual, but the ones that we have are very meaningful and none more so than Passover. And it's, the, uh, it's one of the most ancient thoughts in the mind of God himself. It goes back into past eternity when God preordained a plan, a plan whereby he could engender his own kind. And the concept of Passover, the concept of a necessary graceful exercise on his part to find some way to forgive us was born in his mind in past eternity. And so Passover is very, very important for us. But I want to ask a question. I suppose many of you would be able to give a good answer. But why do we keep Passover? I mean, why do we do it? Isn't it an old Jewish thing? Why do we keep Passover? Well, the simple answer, the obvious answer, is simply because God's word says keep Passover. That's reason enough, right? That's reason enough, yeah. But there's great, great meaning in Passover, great symbology. The, uh, the, the fact is, it's one of the seven annual holy days that God gave to us. And in those holy days, we see evidence of the musturion of God, the mystery of God, those things not understood, generally speaking, in the world at large about what God is doing. In the, in the holy days, including the Sabbath, we, we understand who we are and who God is and, and what he's doing, what he expects of us. The holy days have, have ways of teaching us that nothing else can affect. When you're in con congregation on the Sabbath and on the holy days, God can speak to you via his spirit through the preaching and the reading of God's word in spectacular ways that nothing else can match. But you've got to be there to get it, of course. There's special insight and special learning in each of his holy days. And Passover is the most meaningful of all, of course, because it involves the Passover lamb, the one that we've come to understand as the Paschal lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, over to 1 Peter. You know, uh, in ancient Egypt, the children of Israel were slaves for 430 years. And at the end of that 430 years, God brought them out, he freed them, and he had to re-educate them, reteach them. They were no longer Hebrew other than in name only. They were Egyptian in every respect. Uh, they liked Egyptian food. They, can, they wanted to go back to Egypt all the time. You know, they had... Egyptian gods and so forth. First thing they did when Moses wasn't there with them was, what they do? They made a, a golden calf, you know, which was a, a primary deity in, in Egypt. And so God had to re-educate them. He had to teach them the, the, the core meaning of, of all of the holy days and even to when to begin to count time. And the lesson that he taught them about Passover was not immediately understood by them. 
And even to this very day, the Jewish people, wonderful people that they are, bright, articulate people that they are, uh, they don't understand Passover in the context that we do. For them, it's just a celebration of an anniversary, the anniversary of their freedom from bondage. And uh, I don't know if any of you have ever uh, had the privilege of uh, sitting through a, a cedar meal in a Jewish household, and I have. And, uh, and that is exactly what they celebrate, the fact that freedom has, has happened to them, and they're no longer under, under the bondage, and they celebrate it from that aspect. And the, 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 the fact of the blood on the door is, is seldom, if ever, even mentioned. And in fact, it was not mentioned in the entire cedar ceremony that I was able to partake of. And so it's completely missed. And from their perspective, it's just a matter of freedom. Well, that's not incorrect. It is a matter of freedom. And the symbology that speaks to us is that when the eternal passed over each of those houses, and it was the eternal, as he passed over each of those houses, he was looking for blood. He was looking for the blood of the lamb, a flawless, blemish-free, perfect lamb. And that blood had to be applied to the doorposts and lintels of the homes. And as the Eternal passed over each of those homes, he looked to see the blood. And if the blood was there, there was salvation to the inhabitants of that home, you see. And now we understand that the blood of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb of God, as we shall read here directly, that that is now painted on the doorposts and lintels of our hearts. If we have endeavored to have a relationship with him, if we've come to that moment of contrition and remorse wherein we, we seek to be forgiven and we realize that we have grievously offended our God and we've transgressed his law and we want to be forgiven and we've endeavored to become repentant and to change our ways and to go under the waters of baptism and have a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. If we are in that relationship then, theoretically, figuratively speaking, that blood is now on the doorposts and lentils of our hearts. Yes. And our Father is still looking to see that. That's the figure. That's the symbology. He wants to see that that blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very important that we understand that. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1, let me break into the text of Peter's writing here at verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conduct, your vain conversation, your vain anastrophe, your way of living, walking, talking, everything that you received by tradition from your fathers, the culture that you were in, everything inclusive. You didn't get it from that, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who very truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So we see very clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ, at the throne of God, sometime before the foundation of the world, it was foreordained. A plan was set in motion before the foundation of the world that God the Word would enter into his own creation and that he would become flesh 
and that he would enter into the womb of a young Jewish girl to be born a human being, to live a perfect life, to be a perfect lamb, a spotless, blemish-free lamb, to be the paschal lamb of God, to be sacrificed for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the monogenous, the singular one-time and one-time only event, the one-time only physical progeny of God the Father, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes. And so we are, we are privileged, are we not? A great privilege to understand these, these powerful truths, these truths that touch us and, and move us, and privileged to be able to participate in a, in a ritual and a ceremony that existed at the throne of God in concept before man existed, before sin happened, before the foundation of the world, our gracious and magnanimous and all-knowing God understood what it would require. And the counting of the cost happened in past eternity. And it was determined at the throne that God the Word would enter into his creation to become the Lamb that we've just read about here. And so, brethren, we are... We are going to be participating in something that's, that's holy. The Lord Jesus Christ actually was here. Sometimes, sometimes even we who are biblically literate, we hear the stories and, and, and we don't necessarily ponder it and meditate on it and think about it like we should always. But the fact is, Jesus of Nazareth was real. He walked the dusty streets of Nazareth. He was, he was a literal human being who, who worked and, and labored as a carpenter. A real man who sometimes got splinters in his fingers because carpenters do that. You know. he, was a, he was a man, and he got cold, and he got hot. Sometimes he got angry. Sometimes he was disappointed. He had to bathe or he would have body odor. If he ate an onion, guess what? He'd have bad breath. He was real. He was a real man. And he really did experience Passover. And so when we meet that night for Passover, you're going to get a sermon here in this congregation from Bill Watson. And I'm going to be giving one in Toledo. But it will be an emotional experience for us. How many of us can remember an emotional experience at Passover? Yes? It, it is. And I can assure you it will be emotional in heaven as well because the Lord Jesus Christ must remember. He must remember what he went through. The pain, the suffering. He really did suffer. He really was punched and beat and tormented. They really did spit in his face. The scripture says that he was pummeled and beating, beaten till the edema and swelling was such that he was marred before any man. In, in other words, a new translation is, he didn't look human anymore. He literally was beaten to that point. They tore his beard out as an act of humiliation. They spit in his face. They plaited a, a, a crown of thorns and forced it down onto his head, eliciting deep wounds all the way to the skull causing him to bleed profusely. A head wound is, is very, very uh, prone to bleeding. 
And so his face would have been drenched in blood. It would have been in his eyes. It would have been all over him. A bloody mess. Yes, indeed. And they stripped him naked. They paraded him through the streets naked. They hung him on the cross naked. They beat him with a, with a whip. They flagellated his flesh with a terrible instrument of torture that had little pieces of bone and lead in it. They striped his back until it tore the flesh open all the way to the bone. And they did indeed nail him to an upright piece of wood, a staros. We call it the cross in the Bible. Whether it had anything fixed to it to make it look like a cross, we don't know for sure. But the fact is, he was crucified on an instrument of wood, a cruel instrument of wood, a staros. They nailed him to it. They nailed his hands and his feet to the staro. They nailed it. Can you imagine? No, you cannot imagine. And he bled, and he suffered in terrible ang anguish and agony. And they pierced his side, and he bled, and he bled to death, and he died. He died for your sins and for mine. For the wages of sin is death. And that debt had to be paid. Either you will pay it, and I will pay it, we will pay it, or he could pay it for us. When you put it into those terms and begin to digest it that way, then the love spoken of in John 3.16 takes on greater significance for you. How much love? There aren't enough words. We can't comprehend it. For God so loved, yes, and he went through that. That kind of courage, that kind of devotion, that kind of selfless giving of self to pay for your sins and mine, it required a payment. And he made the payment. What a magnificent Lord Jesus he is. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. In fact, our words of praise are insufficient for such a magnificent Lord. Yes. And now... He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he provides inspiration for us. He provides his own mind, his own way of thinking to come to us, to help us, to facilitate our relationship with him and the Father. Yes. And he's there for us. And when we fail and still sin, well, let me interrupt myself. Maybe I'm the only one that does that. Does anybody else here still sin? I take that as an affirmative, yes. And the fact is, the best among us still sometimes miss the mark. In fact, don't we do it rather frequently? Because we have a natural movement towards sin, a natural propensity towards sin. Yes. You see, when he came here, he came here not just to die for us, which he did very nobly, very effectively, but he came here also to experience what it is to be a human, to experience our dust and our frame, to know what it is to be disappointed, to know what it is to be so frustrated that you want to scream. And if you think he didn't ever experience that, then you don't know him. He was a man in every detail, in every respect, and he was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. 
That, by definition of those very words, means that he was frustrated at times, tempted at times to, to strike out and to, and to respond in kind, like we frequently do. But he did not. He remained a flawless, spotless, perfect lamb. And when he was nailed to that cross, he was indeed sinless. And he was innocent. And he did not deserve what he did for you and for me. Now, I've said all that to set our minds and our hearts in motion, hopefully, to elicit some emotion about this great event that we're going to be experiencing. It needs to be emotional. We need to feel the emotion of it. We need to realize that something is, something is happening with us and that our relationship with Jesus Christ and our Father is real. It's not just, it's not just words on a page. It's not just rhetoric. Yeah. Do you realize that, that you're changed, that you're different, that you're not the same now, that you can never be the same how many are baptized here? Will you keep your hand up and tell me that you know something has begun in you that will have a conclusion? Do you know that God, your Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ are dealing with you and that something is happening in you that is ordained of God? Do you know that today? Yes. Is, doesn't that touch you? Isn't that powerful? Isn't that motivating? Yes, it is. And Passover celebrates all of those facts, of course. But brethren, I want to caution all of us. I want to change gears a little bit. Because Passover must be approached with a, with a, with a certain reference of mind, a certain frame of mind, a certain humility, a certain humbleness, and a certain awareness of what it's all about and the reasons for it. To, to not lightly enter into it. To not do it in any kind of cavalier way. And to do it after some serious soul searching. Because Passover is, in effect, a recommittal to the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it highlights the fact that we are baptized members of his family. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would over to John chapter 6. Somebody please get me some water. I'm dry as popcorn in a desert. All right. Thanks, Steve. Um, John chapter 6. On that Passover night when we celebrate, thank you, Steve, we're going to be participating in the most sacred event, the most sacred ritual, pardon me, and we're going to, uh, we're going to wash each other's feet like the Lord gave us the example to do, and he said, happy are you if you do this, if you know this and you do this, and we're also going to have unleavened bread and wine, which the Lord Jesus Christ said would represent his body and his blood. And it's a ritual that we are obliged to do. And we don't do it every quarter. 
We don't do it every, you know, we don't do it biannually. We don't do it every week. You know, there are people who actually take communion every day. Yeah. But the Bible is clear. Each of the holy days comes once a year. And Passover, of course, comes once a year. But the taking of the wine and the bread is a daily ritual for us in the way that we live our lives. Do you understand that in John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ is using the, the, the analogy, the metaphor of his body, of, of digesting his body and his blood as, well, you are what you eat. That's, that's the metaphor. That's the, the analogous thinking that he uses here. And in John chapter 6, let me break into the text of John chapter 6 at verse 51. He said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And of course, the Jews who heard it were completely oblivious to what he was talking about. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And they thought he was literally talking about, uh, apparently about cannibalism, you know. Uh, remarkably so, there is a great church organization today that believes that the, the eating of the wafer, the eating of the unleavened bread, little, literally does turn into the f literal flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ in your body. It's called sub... sub... transubstantiation. Thank you. Appreciate the help. And... Uh, the, the fact is, the Lord Jesus Christ made it clear that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Verse 53, the Lord said, Very truly I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And of course, the Bible is clear, life is in the blood. And he goes on here, Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwells in me, and I in him. And as the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. And there's a very important key right there living a particular way, imbibing the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that we live, eating his flesh and drinking his blood in the way that we interact with each other and the way that we interact with his word and the, and the kind of disciples that we are. That's what we must daily be involved in doing, of course. And now I want to, uh, to ch change gears, like I said, Turn with me in your Bibles over to Psalm 139. You know, uh, David was a man after God's own heart. And we're told that in both Testaments, the Old and the New. And uh, I'm convinced that a primary reason was David's creativity. And... Uh, his creativity is evident in the psalms that he wrote. You know, what a magnificent uh, uh, wordsmith he was. You know, he, his eloquence. And uh, God is attracted to creativity. And I include that because I want to encourage you to be creative in the way that you worship your, your God. 
in your Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become Pentecostal, but I am suggesting that you give up your heart to him. And when you're in your prayer closet, when you're alone with God, when you're worshiping your, your God, it, it should really be authentic worship. And it shouldn't be a, a rote memorized over and over and over and over again repeating of the same prayer. Search your heart, search your mind, meditate on what you're doing. Think about the fact that you're talking to Almighty God and to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that your word is there in heaven at the throne of God. Yes. And let it come from your heart. Be creative. And I don't know any way other than to show you. Somebody's going to say, well, Wayne's up there acting again. Well, if that's what they say, amen, that's all right. But when I'm in my prayer closet, away from my wife, when I'm completely alone, I want to give it to my God. I lift up holy hands to God. I worship you, my Father, great almighty God, my sovereign Lord in heaven, and my Lord Jesus Christ there at your right hand. I worship you today, my magnificent Lord. Thank you so much, Father, for the plan of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming here to be my Savior. Thank you for being my advocate at the throne. Thank you, Father. Did, am I getting through to you? You've got to give it up to God. You've got to worship God. You've got to be giving it from your heart. Yes. And you've got to be in your prayer closet so that it's, it's not a performance for anyone. You're giving it to God. Prepare yourself for Passover. Worship your God. Open your heart. In Psalm 139, I want to break into the text at verse 23. Do you have the courage to do this? You see, I bring this up because, because we as students of God's Word, we are a biblically literate church. And, and we, we understand a, a great deal of the Mysterion of God. He has graciously opened up our understanding in ways that the world does not understand, in ways that the Christian community at large does not understand. And by virtue of his spirit, it has been opened up for our understanding. And because of that, I think sometimes we can get caught up in, in just a, a routine, a, a rote exercise of what it means for us to know the things we know. To come to Sabbath services and, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's in terms of the physical things that we do. ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We have a head full of knowledge. God's church is educated. We know a lot of things. But it's more than just what we know. It's putting it into practice. And in Psalm 139 here, at verse 23, David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Boy, that's, have you got the courage to do that? I mean, it's like a challenge to God. Look inside me and, and see what's in there and try me. Let me know and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How very important as we approach Passover to think that way. Turn with me in your Bibles now to the New Testament. The book of James.
Now, the reason I said it's important for us to not just have a head full of knowledge, but to, to be active disciples. The word disciple is related to the concept of discipline. And here in the book of James, as we approach Passover, as we're getting ready for Passover, it's important that we do some introspective examination, an honest assessment. And guess what? If you're honest with yourself, you will find that you are not worthy for Passover. You will discover that since last Passover, you've sinned egregiously numerous times. If you do some honest soul searching, you will realize that you're not worth one nail in his hand, that you're not worth what happened to him, and that you never can be, that you'll never be a good enough Christian to equal what he did for you. But it all goes to the concept of his grace and his love. Here in James chapter 1. Let me break into the text at verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Make no mistake. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. How very significant that God describes himself as light. You know, We are somewhat sophisticated about the laws of physics and we know that light moves in a straight line. How significant. He doesn't variate. He doesn't wobble, you know. He's, he's not wishy-washy. God is moving in a straight line, just like light does move. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will, he begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creations. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak, slow to wrath. How very often we, we do that exactly opposite. We don't listen. Sometimes we're too quick to speak. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. The word filthiness is interesting. It's hruparia. I can't help, but I've got to look at George when I say these Greek words. <laughs> and if he's smiling, I know I'm somewhere close. You know. to make, it means to make or do that which is dirty or unclean or dishonorable. And the word superfluity is perisos, or perisos, and it means an abundance of depravity. In this context, an abundance of depravity or malicious thinking. The word kakia, malicious thinking, naughtiness, malicious thinking, yes. Verse 22. Instead of Huparia and perisos and kakia, <laughs> be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Yeah. We can deceive ourselves. We can be so full of knowledge, so biblically literate, so, so full of, of doctrine, so able to expound it, so sure of it, that that's all it is for us anymore. It's 
the, the emotional content gets left out somehow. Ever learning and ever coming to the knowledge of the truth, deceiving our own selves. Verse 23, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. You know, God's word is portrayed like a mirror. You look into this mirror. If you look in there, you'll find yourself. You'll find a profile. And it'll resonate with you. For he beholds himself and goes his way. And straightway forgets what manner of man he was. He look, you look in there and you see yourself. You see, the, you see all the warts and wrinkles, the gray hair. You see everything that's there about you. About the real you, the real character. Yes. But sometimes we allow what we know to just sort of crowd that out, you know, push it to the side. Because after all, I understand the plan of God. I understand about the family of God. I understand the mysterion of God. Why, I'm not like other men. Well, it's kind of like that guy that beat up on his chest and said, I tithe thrice in a week and I fast. And, you know. and the other guy, the poor ignorant guy, didn't know nothing. He wouldn't even look up. He just smote his own breast. And he said, Lord... Forgive me. And he went home justified, and the other guy did not. That's the lesson, of course, that I'm trying to teach to us today. He beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. The word is ergon. It's not a mistake. It means work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. Yes, there is work involved. The very concept of disciple, being a disciple, implies labor. It implies discipline. It implies being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and actually doing something. James had it very, very cogent here that we must be involved not just with a head full of knowledge, because we can, be, we can deceive ourselves. And a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Did I say 1 Corinthians? I meant 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's that same concept. Examine yourselves. Verse 5. This is rather shocking when you think of it in terms of us as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ. You mean to tell me this could be a reality for one of us? Yes, indeed. Verse 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Are you in the faith? You know, that's not just faith in Jesus Christ, but it's the faith of Jesus Christ, and it's the body of beliefs that we define as faith. Those things that we are obliged to do. In fact, the work, the ergon required of us. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. No, you're not. Don't you know, don't you understand your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, unless or except you be reprobates. You mean to tell me that we as Christians 
can become reprobates? Yes, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at here. We can be reprobates in the way that we begin to think. And we can play head games. And we can be double-minded. And we can just be so full of knowledge, ever learning, but never quite coming to the knowledge of the truth about ourselves. Yes. And the need within us. And I want to draw your attention to this from another perspective. It's my words, but theologically, nevertheless, it's still sound because I want to I tell you about this word reprobate. It means to be, when you break the word down in its syllables, it, it means to be reprobated, you see. We can actually be reprobated in regards to the law. We're not under the law now, not under the penalty of the law. We're under God's grace, but we can fall out of that grace. We can be reprobated to no longer be under that grace. Are you following me? The, the legal concept here must apply. And we don't want that to happen. Now, turn with me in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians. Because I have stressed that we're not worthy of what the Lord Jesus Christ did on our behalf. And yet, we read there in John chapter 6 that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood in the way that we live our lives. And here the Apostle Paul makes it clear that we must do it in the ritual given to us on that night as well. And I want to break into the text here of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and Paul says beginning at verse 23, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, when he had taken a sip of it himself, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, the new covenant of my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And people will say, well, see there, you're supposed to do it often. As often as you do it, that means do it often. Well, no, it doesn't. It means as you do it every time you do it, and we do it once a year, of course. That's how oft we do it. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. You do catangelo, you do proclaim and portray and accurately show his death. You portray it again. You bring it to memory. You bring it to your memory and you bring it to his memory at the throne of God. And it is a reciprocal event that night. A reciprocation of emotion as well as understanding. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily 
shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Okay. I've already tricked you into saying that you're not worthy. Is anybody here worthy? I'm not worthy. And neither are you. Unfortunately, there are those who practice a type of Christianity where that is misconstrued. But the word is anaxios. And it literally means to do it in a way that is not reverential, to do it in a way that doesn't appreciate it, to do it in a way wherein it's not completely understood, to do it in a way where it's not respected the way it's supposed to be. That's what the word means. It has nothing to do with you or me being worthy. If I had not committed a sin since last Passover to this Passover, I still wouldn't be worthy of what Jesus Christ went through. You can't ever be worthy in that respect. But even though we've all transgressed, we've all missed the mark, and the Lord Jesus Christ had to work on our behalf since last Passover, nevertheless, we understand what it's all about. And we appreciate his gracious help on our behalf. We know what it's all about. We understand the the power of Passover and how privileged we are to be able to partake of it. The life-giving blood and flesh represented by that wine and that bread. The word is anaxios, and it literally means to do it in an irreverent way, a way that is not worthy. Verse 28. All right, let a man examine himself. All right, so I've examined myself. We've examined ourselves. And if you've come to the conclusion that that you are worthy, then you need to re-examine yourself and understand what we're being told here. If you appreciate it, if you truly understand it, if you know why it was done, if it means something to you, not just intellectually, but emotionally, if you understand what the Lord Jesus Christ went through, if you understand the power of that blood and that flesh, if you truly understand this symbology, and you are grateful for it, then let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So, brethren, on that night, when you come together to celebrate the Passover, the most ancient and most holy ritual that God has given us, I hope that we will have some increased understanding about the power and the majesty of Passover. God be with you.